This episode is brought to you by Etail West. Want to know where the most successful fashion and beauty brands go to learn from the top minds in retail? Well, that's Etail West. Since 1999, Etail West has been the destination for the nation's leading retailers to come together and share the latest strategies and best practices for engaging and retaining today's connected consumer. Join everyone at Etail West as they celebrate the 20th anniversary this February 19th to the 22nd at the luxurious JW Marriott in Palm Springs, California, where you'll experience four days of amazing insights from brands like Nordstrom, LVMH, Under Armour, Fabletics, Sephora, Poshmark, and more. You'll get to experience everything from targeted roundtables and summits to interactive case study remixes. You'll find the tools you need to build a complete omnichannel shopping experience. And it wouldn't be e-tail without an amazing party or two to decompress and network. So visit etailwest.com today and reserve your space. Enter the code BRICK for 20% off your registration. Etail West, transforming retail together. Hey everyone, it's Todd and welcome to episode 56 of the Brick and Data podcast. So at NRF 2019 in January, Jose and I got a few minutes to sit down with Sarah Whiffen, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Rovi, R-O-H-V-I. And Rovi works with high-end brands to essentially buy back items that have been purchased in the past and issue a store credit to those same customers. And what they've found is that customers spend significantly more, about eight times more, in this buyback scenario versus a normal gift card situation. So they're targeting mid to high-end brands using their own proprietary machine learning to accomplish all this. And it's really kind of neat. It's a new model. It flips a few things on its head a little bit, takes some ideas from other industries that we might be familiar. An example of that would be the car industry from which Sarah came from in the past. So there's lots of correlations here and things you might recognize, but it's surprising how effective this has been for many mid to high-end brands. And in the end, which is one of the most important things for these brands, is customer retention. So here's Sarah. Enjoy. So tell us about, you know, how your first NRF went, how the Innovation Lab presentation went yesterday, I think it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. So I was telling Jose before the <laughs> podcast, it either feels like all one long day or it's been a really long month. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, what an amazing jam-packed couple of days here. The NRF does a tremendous job of really pulling in some innovative resources and also um, just a breadth of retailers. And so we've been so impressed with what we've seen on the floor. And that's also the conversations that we've had with people and the sessions that we've attended. Um, it's been really interesting. The Some of the things that came to mind um, as a, an innovator sure. and from the startup perspective was um, the emphasis that we keep hearing about with respect to machine learning, yeah. we were talking about a little bit, and, and the role that machine learning might play and sure. how retailers are thinking about it and looking at it. And I think what's become clear is that uh, there's really no standard definition for machine learning um, in the minds of a lot of the retailers. I'll, sure. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think <laughs> of that or what your definition might be or how you're using it as we think about it. Um, and you know, based on our platform, it's predictive analytics that continues to get better over time, um, which just makes good sense. Sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As you know, any retailer, any solutions provider would want to do a better job at knowing their customer and understanding Absolutely. how they can better serve their customer. Um, and so 
whether you call it analytics, data science, machine learning. Right. Um, I think the idea of both solutions providers and retailers wanting to use their data better and know their customers yeah, better sure. um, has come through as a definite strong theme for me in this conference. Sure, and, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Because ultimately, it's about being able to solve particular pain points with any given technology and being able to address them wherever it is in the supply chain um, or otherwise. But getting back to something that you said, you, uh -huh. you're talking about um, your talk, so maybe it, it, it would help our, our audience if you told us a little bit about Rovi, how you came up with the idea, uh, where the name came from, and anything else that you'd like our audience to know about Rovi. Absolutely, so Rovi, uh, we had the opportunity to debut Rovi on the innovation stage yesterday um, for this crowd, which, which was a wonderful opportunity for us. Rovi is spelled R-O-H-V-I, um, and the Ro uh, kind of stands for, represents the idea of rotating or changing. The V-I is the Latin root of a, a way to or a means of, and so Rovi is a way of rotating or changing out your closet. Hmm. And the platform is a re-commerce platform for retailers. So basically what we do is we're a white label platform, and we use retailers' customer past transaction data to generate buyback offers for their customers. So an example would be, um, I might have bought this jacket from um, Eileen Fisher, say. Sure. So Eileen Fisher would send me an email saying, Sarah, we know you bought this jacket from us two years ago. If it's spending more time in your closet than you sure. had hoped now, uh, we'd like to give you $40 towards the purchase of something new at Eileen Fisher if you send it back. Sure. So Rovi is the platform that enables those buyback offers to be generated. We generate the personalized email offers um, that connect it with specific imagery that's personal to the individual. Sure. And then we actually handle the operations and fulfillment of the item, so the item comes back to us, we process it, we issue the um, store credit, sure. and then the customer goes back and spends. Um, and I think that the most compelling proof point of this is that the spend with this store credit is significantly higher than what retailers see from traditional incentives or discard, uh, discount promos. Exactly, and, and before when we were talking, uh, prior to the show, mm -hmm. You had mentioned um, a little bit about your background, mm -hmm. right? How you came up with the concept. Could you take talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, translation for me. Um, I spent most of my career so far with Toyota and Lexus um, on the automotive side. And this concept of remarketing and doing buybacks is very common with vehicles. The reason why it works so well is that uh, you only have the capacity to house so many vehicles um, per family. So we knew that most times people's mindset would change about whether sure. or not they wanted to hold on to the car before the actual car would stop running or be of no longer of value. So we had to create ways to get them to swap out and replace uh, and upgrade their vehicles continually. And so the automotive sector has become very good at, at identifying timing and pricing and messaging uh, to enable that pool. And we see it also translates very well into electronics. You only have one spot in your pocket for a phone. Right. So these phone buybacks kind of work in the same way. And so we're translating that to the fashion sector where customers have been telling us, I have too much stuff. My closet <laughs> is just full. And it's not an issue of I'm waiting for another coupon from my favorite brand because I just don't have, it's not a money issue. It's just a space capacity and kind of a mental clutter issue. First it's, world problems. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's what yeah. it is. But the customers from a, you talked about in the beginning about using your data and analytics to improve the whole customer journey, right? And so right. the recognition that the brand can play a role when 
some of that excitement or luster wears off of that initial purchase and you find that, okay, I bought this item a couple of years ago and it met my need and I wore it two or three times and it just doesn't get a lot of attention now, but boy, the excitement when customers know that they can replace it with something new, we see in a huge leap in engagement and click-throughs and interest in seeing, okay, well, if I gave it back, maybe I can get something better for it. And maybe, sure. you know, just wanting to look and see what else is, like FOMO, right? Mm -hmm. Fear of missing out. <laughs> what else is out there that might be better than what I currently have hanging in my closet right. that I, I'm not passionate about? Um, so being able to identify what those items might be, to identify the specific timing and price point and messaging that sure. will pull them out, that's where we're experts. And, and so do you find that retailers, uh, since you're pioneering this market, mm -hmm. right? Rovi is a pretty... Correct, we're the first resale platform created solely for the benefit of retailers. Exactly. So how do retailers react uh, when they first hear about your value prop? So th that's very interesting because uh, we it's fun to talk about our platform, especially if there are customers mm -hmm. around because yeah. customers and like store associates who are customers will raise their hand immediately and say, I want that. <laughs> like I would totally do that. And people can immediately think of maybe 80% of the items in their closet that they aren't passionate about, that they would be willing to swap for something new or, or different or better in their mind. Um, I think where retailers uh, are a bit challenged still today is figuring out where this fits in their um, organization. So is this something that comes in through data and through the chief data officer? Is it something that comes in through marketing? Mm. Is it a retention campaign? Is it a loyalty platform? Is it... Um, a creative like, Can I give you my opinion what yeah. I, on what I yeah, might Yeah, I'd love to hear your opinion. No, I know you've been, uh, you've been doing this for a while, so you, I think you pretty well understand where this should be for a retailer, because you've been selling it to retailers. Uh -huh. It seems to me like it's a brand loyalty program for them. At least that's, that's maybe I should say that it's, that's a side effect of what you're doing for them. So it it's, you know sits I mean? very comfortably. I think it, yeah. it definitely checks the box on brand loyalty. Yeah. There's an acquisition component to this mm -hmm. in that when customers understand that your brand participates in something like this, it's something that appeals mm -hmm. to the Gen Z, millennial, totally. kind of that younger generation. And yeah. it almost gives a traditional retailer the opportunity to have a subscription component yeah. to what they're doing, right? Because customers buy and they don't detract at all from the buying experience. You're not asking them to make a decision about changing how they buy or diminishing that joy of the purchase. But then it's messaging months later sure. to say like, if this item, you know, maybe you've been photographed on Instagram on it, you know, once or twice and, and that's it. It's not going to be worn again. Like, could that retailer then basically swap it out, give you the credit to try something new sure. for it? So it... Like knowing that a retailer offers this has become uh, a positive on the acquisition front as well as loyalty. Yeah, uh, it does seem like it checks multiple boxes, and that's a that's a plus for you, I'm guessing, going into a new uh, a, a potential new retailer, right, to speak to them about this. But I'm sure you want to focus as much as you can right. when you go in there to really crystallize that to them, the value to them, right? Because Correct. Because in any new market, any new any new offering that uh, you know is is staking new territory, especially in a very fragile industry right now, right? With retail, I mean, it is doing well, but still there are questions. There's lots we talked about earlier, you're saying about the machine learning and the predictive analytics and the, all the different terms that are being thrown out there and the optimization and you know robotics and automation and all this stuff, and it's gotta be incredibly overwhelming. But this is a separate separate layer, but it seems like much of, your do, much of what you're doing here, at least the data you're referencing is 
is a result of much of that already. So there's, there's elements that are overlapping here. And then if you looked at like a giant picture of all this with bubbles everywhere, it would be a messy <laughs> set of bubbles. <laughs> and, and you think about a, you know, a retailer trying to decipher all of this, it's very difficult. So it seems like you're very crystal clear as to what the value is. And that's that's must have helped you so far, at least in your, you know, in your current relationships with retailers. Absolutely, so, yeah. but I, I think to your point, there are nobody out here who's a retailer is going back to their office and sitting wondering what I should do next. Oh, no. Right? There's yeah. there's a huge list sure. of They've things for them to, to do. do. Yeah, they have yeah. lots of responsibilities, yeah. et cetera. So I think part of the challenge then is figuring out like, is this another thing that gets layered on top of existing responsibilities yeah. that I have, or is this um, going to replace something? The value, part of the value that we bring is there are some very simple and seamless ways that um, we can even start doing some smaller pilots to kind of test right. and, and show retailers that we do the bulk of the heavy lifting and it really is not um, a significant added investment of either time and nor money. You do seem to take a lot time. of the logistical element out yeah. of the way, the execution of those um, uh, of those transactions out of the way for the retailer. So that must help them from an operational perspective, I'm guessing. There's uh, obviously some tie-in with the operational angle uh, in some form or fashion for them, but not as much as it would be if they took this on on their own. Yeah, right? even for yeah. piloting, it's, it's very uh, minimal at, sure. at, at, at best. Like just a, a very simple um, kind of connection on our end. But the I think that the the value, the recognizing that right now, resale is the fastest growing segment in mm -hmm. retail. Sure. This resale market. and these brands, every time a customer takes one of these brands and, and engages with that resale platform, it's a missed opportunity to engage with that customer, right? And to re-engage them. So if you're sending your customers to you know, resell at RealReal or ThreadUp or these other platforms, the minute they have their email and their item information, they're marketing to them as an, another two-sided marketplace. So right. I compare it all the time to what was happening in the early days of e-commerce when I went to a Borders bookstore in the early 2000s and couldn't find a book. And the gentleman said, if you want to order it, you can go to Amazon.com and order it online. <laughs> so someone from Borders sent me to Amazon back in the early 2000s, right? Like, no big deal. Well, it's not I, a threat. It's not a problem. Right, just, it's, just go there. Yeah, right, it's just little Amazon yeah, But no now I feel like customers, retailers are doing the same thing with these resale platforms. Like if you want to yeah. sell, resale is handled over there. We only handle new. So I think, you know, Jose's comment early on about using data to enhance the entire customer journey, the entire customer experience. Resale is a big part of it, and customers are doing it, whether brands like it or not. Sure. So I think the idea of having a platform that exists solely for the benefit of the brand, it was designed and built so that brands benefit from resale. Um, that's what we're hoping, like, that brands see the, the opportunity with that. Sure, and that's really cool, because if you think about that, you could also add even this other layer of sustainability. Absolutely. Brand, right, if you think of Patagonia, you yep. can trade things in or get things fixed. Yep. Uh, which is a, a lot of what they're doing. And they're not doing what you're doing, but I mean, yeah. they just have that element of... That mindset, that, that, there's, that the relationship with the customer and the clothing item does not end when they make the sale. Exactly. And this is exactly... So, you know, today I think when uh, a lot of the retailers are looking at what that customer journey is and when that customer journey ends, they make the purchase, they walk out of the store, and then the next interaction is, because you bought this, maybe you want to buy this, and this, and this, and this. Mm -hmm. And it's that additive but is not recognizing that in reality, then that customer walks out with that item, they're going to continue to have a journey with that item. And it might be 
if it is a special occasion dress that they you know wear once or twice or you know wear to that wedding or wear for the weddings that summer and and don't want to recycle again for the following summer like how are you going to meet that customer's needs where they are and get them to see your your brand your store as that place where all of their special occasion dresses should be coming from right like and not to to accumulate them per se but even just to like to have that subscription model of always coming back to you. Exactly. And, and with that in mind, I mean, it, we were talking uh, about the psychology. Yes. Right? Um, in a conversation that we had earlier. Uh-huh. And part of the value proposition uh, is, is just that. Uh, and in our initial conversation, you mentioned that there is a behavioral economics actually involved here. Could you elaborate for our listeners? Yeah, I think that's one of the most fun things to see. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's the, the real world testing, right, sure. that we get to, to do as retailers and to see not just like clicks and how people are reacting. Like a click is much more than just um, what you're seeing online. It represents like how people are thinking about the, the shopping journey, right, and their, and their buying journey and, and what their likes are, et cetera. Um, so one of the interesting things that we see, and we heard this echoed in, in one of the talks today, is the lift we get from providing these truly personalized emails. So I think what another interesting evolution um, as we, is the word personalization and what sure. that means, right? Because I think several years ago, the idea of personalization was if you got an email with your name on it. Right, and mm-hmm. so that email, the, the body of the email was exactly the same as everyone else is getting, but it had your name on it. That was a personalized, to sure. some extent, email, <laughs> right? Or if if you were broken then into a segment, and your masthead was different than another segment, etc., that was a personalized email. But for us to be able to then take the data of the transaction, so if you've purchased ten items from this retailer. For us to, to mine and identify, like, here's the one item that we think is going to be the most effective buyback that's going to get this customer back and repurchasing at the lowest buyback offer and at the best time, the email that they get has their name, an image of that item that they've purchased, and an offer that's tailored to them. And it's sure. truly, like, micro-personalized, micro-segmented, right? Um, so, quick question. Yeah. If we're talking about data here. Yeah. Um, do you, when you uh, work with a retailer... Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get access to their systems to s- explore this information, or do they actually do some type of a data export? I can't imagine that's an the extract. Case. Oh, an extract. Okay, yep. got it, got it, got it. Yeah, right, interesting. Yeah, we have um, 100% secure, segmented environment. Mm-hmm. We get an extract of that data, um, and it can be uh, um, anonymized and, and disconnected, and right. then we'll just use a like, customer key basically so not to marry for mailing. Personally identifiable information. Correct. That. It's more yeah. of the other elements that you need to be able to make your decisions. Exactly. Right? There's yeah. no credit yeah. card information passed. Mm-hmm. Like none sure. of that information is is necessary. It's purely um, basically sense. what you would see on a receipt. Yep. The item purchase, the date purchase, yep. um, sure. the, the value of the item, those types of of attributes, etc. And with the more detail. Um, the more we're able to kind of hone in and refine that buyback price for the individual. So if you have like customer lifetime value, like that type of score, et cetera, um, you know, we can drive those behaviors. And, you know, we can tailor campaigns to things such as that customer who came in and bought something two years ago who you haven't seen since then. Like, will this get them back in the door? Or or that customer who... um, we worked with a retailer, for example, and could see, you know, here's your entry product of getting a customer to move from purchasing shoes to purchasing clothing. And if you can get them to purchase clothing, they'll spend X amount more, right? So mm-hmm. if we can tailor the buyback of, you know, here's an, if you bring this in, you can exchange for store credit that you can use on these types of items, right? To introduce them to new categories um, or new ways of shopping. So you, there's an obvious partnership with marketing. 
I'm yes, guessing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think some, I think you have a bit of background in marketing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Marketing. You can tell by some of your language that you're using yeah. too. <laughs> fellow marketers here. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming For the good and bad of that, the right? The good and bad. So yeah, maybe I should well, have said you're talking that. to a marketing expert right now. Right. <laughs> right. We might get eggs thrown at the window. Right. At my face. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But I, I did want to ask you though, uh-huh. um, unrelated to the marketing stuff, um, if we kind of skipped over a question I wanted to ask before yeah. uh, about competition. And I, I know that you're a pioneer in this space mm-hmm. and that's awesome, but no one's ever alone. There's always an option out there, yeah. right? But if you guys didn't exist, mm-hmm. if there was no, if you never started this up, what would a typical uh, consumer be doing? Like, and yeah. you mentioned a few things earlier in uh, as side comments, but maybe you could dig a little bit more into that as to what their other options would be yeah. and, and why that's not an advantage for them or the retailers involved. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. Um, prior to around 2008, 2010, mm-hmm. the option for customers was things like garage sale, sure. local consignment. So you take it down to your local consignment store, big bag of stuff, There's right? so many clean consi- out my closet. Why are there so many consignment stores? Like, and that's, <laughs> honestly, God, in, in the town I live in, in Massachusetts, there's, I think there's three of them. Really? Are there? Three consignment stores. So when you said people have too many clothes in their closet, I'm guessing there's a serious ep- epidemic in the town I live in with yeah. people in clothes <laughs> having too many in their closets and they have to then give them to consignment stores. That's exactly what, that's so, why there's so yeah, many consignment I, stores. I, I, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's insane. Anyway. Yeah, the, because there, there are a lot of items and I think, so really <clears> there existed, existed these fragmented consignment stores yeah. prior to around 2010 and then we saw the emergence of consignment online. Uh, with things like the growth of Poshmark and the Real Real sure. and um, ThreadUp and kind of all the tradesy, like all those types of you know, different um, targets, diff- slightly different approaches um, to consignment. But mm-hmm. when they started going online, you started to see much more of a consolidation. So some cities like, um, I think New York has maybe seen a, a dip in some of the mm-hmm. consignment store places. Some smaller areas have seen an increase um, as people have kind of adopted to this mindset that Resale is of value and temporary clothing in a way. Well, and yeah, this the yeah. stigma off shopping for resale it used to, the perception used to be that it was a thrifty bargain hunter mm-hmm. thing. It was the garage sale shopper, mm-hmm. right? right? That would roll up at eight a.m. on a Saturday and be looking for twenty-five cent pants. Mm-hmm. That's not the way things are moving anymore. <laughs> I've right? seen it happen still, so, I, so uh, but you're right. But, the, yeah. but in terms, I've of never done that. Stop. <laughs> Right. Nice pants I have on today. These are lucky brand jeans. I love them. <laughs> but, the, but nowadays. The one of the, I think the largest segment of resale shoppers are over a hundred thousand dollar a year income shoppers. Yeah. So it's not your thrifty value shoppers, mm-hmm. and it's also it is something that's like thoroughly ingrained in the mindset of millennials and Gen Z. But it's also now thoroughly accepted up through you know Gen X and sure. and sure. above. Like yeah. it's it's become much more commonplace. It's become much more acceptable to just as, as customers have now kind of fully integrated fast fashion with high-end fashion sure. and, and have melded like one wardrobe that comprises that and don't shop all at one sure. type of store. Resale is one piece of that, that closet in that process. And for every, again, for like every one of those interactions that are happening outside of your brand is, is a lost opportunity to capitalize sure. on that. W- so, oh, so if, if I can just add yeah. um, from like a customer perspective, when we make some of these offers, we get uh, comments back, sometimes to the effect of, you know, I wish I would have gotten this offer a month ago. I just sold these, took these shoes to the real real to mm-hmm. sell. And then it follows with usually, and I was very disappointed because either it took so long for me to get my money sure. or 
um, I got less than I had anticipated, or it was such a frustrating process to do you know, X, Y, Z with it. But what they, and then when they often lead with, I would much rather have taken a lower offer from the brand that I like to deal with than started a whole new relationship and like kind of uh, fought tooth and nail to yeah. get like an extra sure. 20 bucks or something on that end. And to us, that that's the opportunity space is like not only are your customers participating in this, but they are not loving it. They're not loving the process with the resellers, but they're doing it because that's the only option to your question, <laughs> back circling around. <laughs> that, that's the option available to them right now. Yeah. And so basically we're telling customers, we're telling retailers that's not the only option and we can find this win-win that's in the middle. And, and if, just to pick up on what, what you said, what's really interesting is you said usually customers are purchasing uh, resale or mm -hmm. 100K plus households. Yeah. And if you think about the psychology, uh, as you were saying earlier, it makes a lot of sense in the sense that it, in terms of like what brands are they purchasing? It's Whole Foods, right? Yeah. Which yeah. is very much, or partially, yeah. right? Among other things. So mm -hmm. it's very much part of that mentality, mm -hmm. right? If you think of uh, that would be a Patagonia customer. Right. That would be someone who thinks about sustainability or would like to think that they're thinking about sustainability. Tesla drivers. Tesla drivers. Dri right. right? Like. So, so it's this luxury premium yeah. segment yeah. Right? across everything. It yep. could be the XYZ La Colombe coffee drinker, mm. yep. for example, mm, that will throw down six bucks for a special coffee that's just La Colombe. Right. But what's interesting, so th this brings up a question. Why don't I bring this up? Mm -hmm. um, is wh what do brands and retailers uh, do with the buyback items? Yeah, so that's a great question. The benefit of working with our platform is that all those items then come to us and we work with the brand in terms of um, disposition of those assets. So in some cases, brands say, go ahead and, and resell um, with us or on our behalf or instead sure. of us. And, but just do it at an arm's length. Separate sure. it from our brand, disperse it, you know, um, take it to other markets, depending on you know, where they're located, right. et cetera. Um, so that's one method. Another method is um, they might, might have or might desire to have partnerships with uh, various social outlets. Sure. Um, so it, donation plays are popular. Mm. We'll, do, we'll do a campaign like a Dress for Success type mm. of an organization or so where we can pull back items and, and then customers kind of see that and where they're going to. Um, in other cases, there's other either donation or usage opportunities or opportunities to recycle. Sure. Um, where, you know, we'll pull back these products and then, you know, we'll disassemble and recycle in this capacity or that capacity. The benefit of working with us is that all of those options are on the table hmm. for the re retailer. And so we work with them to figure out what's going to make the most sense and what's going to, at the end of the day, bring that customer back and, and enhance that original brand relationship. Yeah, that's, that's a good story overall if you think about that. I mean, from an end-to-end -end from a retailer's perspective, being able to tell that story that they actually do that, it's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, it maybe completes some of the things that they weren't doing before. But I'm sure many retailers are very responsible in that fashion. You know, I don't think there's many bonfires of clothing happening around here. Um, but you never know, <laughs> I guess. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't, there was a big controversy, you know, with some of the luxury retailers yes. ah, recently. And maybe I with misspoke the, Yeah, okay. the, that, was a, that was an issue. Yeah, they the, burn yeah. or bury. Yeah. Oh, literally. Yeah. Literally. Okay. To, pre oh. to preserve the brand. But, but I think this new generation of shopper doesn't view that mm -hmm. as a brand preservation per se. Like yeah, they don't exactly. view that as a positive aspect of the brand. And right. so I think, um, look, I think across the board when we speak with retailers, what we hear 
unequivocally is this is an issue for sure. us. I think that the the retailer eyes have, when it comes to sustainability, um, have been focused more on the sourcing, mm -hmm. sustainable sourcing, sure, sure. Um, and that component of the of the journey and of the customer chain, and some on the sustainability of like the retail footprint and, and things like that, and packaging. And mm. but I think that you know going back to that customer journey and understanding that they can play a role in sustainability at the end of the the item life cycle is still relatively. It's a new area it for is. them, and so that's. You know, we want to help them through it. We want to guide them. Sure. You know, we want to share what we've learned in our experimentation so far, and then we want to co-develop with them, um, working to to come up with something that's going to make sense and and keep that relationship uh, that they have with their customers and strengthen it for the next generation that that cares about the end product. And you have mostly luxury brands as your or yeah, mid moderate mid to luxury and above. Okay, and that's it. your that's your focus, yep. right? Do you see yourself expanding beyond that any, uh, at any point in time? not necessarily to lower levels, but to other types of retailers. You mentioned technology being a nice fit for this. I know mm -hmm. this is a bit outside of the scope of what you currently do, but in terms of future, you know, future movement, or do you find yourself, uh, do you, are you guys satiated right now with the amount of activity you have and the potential for growth and, and all of that, considering you know, the target market of mid to high Yeah, our, our core and our focus is really mid-tier mm. luxury and above. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I would never turn down a conversation <laughs> with anybody. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, always thinking with the mindset of, you know, potentially if, if other potential collaborators or so could in, uh, help or lift the perception of some of our other partners, you know, we would always be willing and, and help um, want to be a conduit for those types of conversations. But, yeah, our, our focus is mid-tier luxury retail and above. Um, and we feel like that's a tremendous opportunity. The retailers we've worked with, the, the customers who have participated in it, um, it works. The mm -hmm. model works, the process works, sure. customers are happy, our stores are happy, and so that's that's our spot, and that's what we're going to grow from. Sure. And how many years has it been again that you've been around? Two years. Two we've years. Been that's two insane. Years. I can't believe we've been two years and have already made all this progress. <laughs> Most people take some two years to write a business plan and actually get funding and get things off, <laughs> off the ground. So If they write the business two, plan. Two if they write years, a business right. plan. Right? <laughs> we might still be working on that part, too. <laughs> fair so. enough. That, that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, I mean, I, I really appreciate you taking time, and uh, and just to just to let people know where they can go to find out more about Rovi, um, www.rohvi.com, and there they can find out more about you, your team, absolutely, and get contact information. Is there any? Is there an email address they should contact? Yeah, if they, you know, if anyone uh, is interested in learning more, uh, who's listening to this, um, they can reach out to me at Sarah at Rovi.com. It's just S A R A at R O H V I dot com. Nice, nice. Perfect. Sarah, thank you so much. We appreciate thank you stopping you. by. Thank you.